0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, April 11, 2022, as we recap the Chicago White Sox first series of the 2022 season. After a heartbreaking opening day that saw closer Liam Hendricks cough up multiple leads late, the White Sox bounced back nicely to win games two and three of the series by a combined score of 15 to three. We'll discuss the explosive White Sox offense, especially against left-handed pitchers still. Andrew Vaughn and Luis Robert both make cases for our golden cog of the series, which goes to the best player voted upon from our followers on Twitter. Starting pitching with Stellar, but we won't see Lucas Giolito for a bit due to injury. Plus, the Seattle Mariners come into town, and we've got your questions to answer in PO Sox. A lot of show to try to fit in 60 minutes, but we'll give it our best. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and hello, Jim. Before we get started with the White Sox talk, recapping the opening series, we have another announcement to make at Socks Machine.
2: Yes, Sorry, I'm trying to keep the show quick. So one word answers is as, uh, <laughs> as often as I can. So yes, yes, we do.
1: <laughs> yes. So, uh, we just had Lauren Holmes join us in our previous podcast, giving out our 2022 season predictions and thanks to Mitch Rosen, who is the operations manager at 670 The Score, and Ryan Porth, who is the assistant brand manager, and Ray Diaz, who is the executive producer of the Lawrence Home Show. Jim and I are going to be contributors to the Lawrence Home Show. Uh, He has nicknamed us the Junior White Sox Analyst because Steve Stone is the Senior White Sox Analyst for the Lawrence Home Show. And you'll be able to listen to Jim and I on Fridays on the Lawrence Home Show when the Chicago Cubs do not have an afternoon game. We are super pumped. Uh, And if you guys already enjoy listening to us, you'll be able to listen to Jim and I on Fridays in the Lawrence Home Show. I'm excited, Jim.
2: I am, too. I mean, I guess we'll find out how much fans will get to listen to you, depending on how bad the White Sox are playing, because, as he mentioned, (laughs) he has uh, basically free reign to just yell at you if the White Sox are representing the worst-case scenario you outlined. So he might introduce you, put you on mute, then put you on blast, and then unmute (laughs) you to say bye. (laughs) But, no, I'm looking forward to it. I like that we are... Peers with Steve Stone, I think we can call. I think if we you know ran into him, we could just say, "Oh, hello, fellow White Sox analyst, yeah Lawrence Holmes, score certified analyst," and then see how uh, you know whether he just <laughs> brushes us off. But at least we can claim uh, the same title, which is nice.
1: Yes, yeah. So again, that's going to be Fridays around one o'clock on the Lawrence Holmes Show, which is on six seventy the Score. And we'll be posting out the links and everything, reminding everyone when we'll be on. Again, the Chicago Cubs do play a lot of Friday afternoon games, but we are very, very excited and very grateful for the opportunity. So, Lawrence, if you are listening, man, thank you so much for this opportunity. We're going to do our best to bring excellent White Sox content to the Lauren Soames show on 670 The Score, which is still the home of the Chicago Cubs, gym. So we can't bash the Cubs too much when <laughs> sure we go we on the show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'll, it, what's funny that, that you were pointing out that I get yelled at if the White Sox are not performing well. Uh, for those that are not in the know, behind the scenes, typically producers will reach out and they'll ask you very nicely, would you like to join the show? I'm expecting if the White Sox ever gets swept in a series Jim, that Lawrence is just gonna text me you are coming on and that's it. <laughs> that's the text you are coming on the show
2: the Junior
1: White Sox pinata. <laughs> there you go that's gonna be my, that's gonna be my revised title the Junior White Sox pinata. that's great. Uh, But thankfully uh, Lawrence has nothing to scream at us about because the White Sox did win the series in Detroit two out of three in game one again the heartbreaking loss they lost five to four in game two they won five to two and game three they just blew out the Tigers ten to one and at one point Detroit just did not look interested at all playing that baseball game. And the offense makes a very good first impression. I'm just going to roll run down the stats here. Luis Robert, 5 for 13, 3 runs scored, 2 stolen bases. Jim, you were wondering what is the ceiling for Luis Robert if his legs are back? Uh, his legs look back.
2: Yes. I liked seeing him steal second on the first and third uh, situation in game the second game of the season. Um yeah, Rami, so often of the White Sox getting run on in that situation and just Yasmani Grandal, whoever, just having to eat it, put the ball in his pocket because the throw down wasn't worth it. And seeing Robert take that base under those circumstances, no throw. I would like to see more of that because the White Sox certainly have had that done enough to them. Especially if Jose Breu
1: is batting and if Tim Anderson's at third base, as a catcher, you got to make a good throw. First, you got to make an excellent throw to throw out Luis Robert. But if you make a wayward throw, all right, well, that's a run because Tim Anderson's a very good base runner. And -hmm. if this goes into center field, Luis Robert could be on third. And we know how effective Jose Abreu is driving in runs, uh, especially just hitting grounders up the middle. One bad throw and a ground out to second base, and you're down two to nothing. And having Luis Robert batting behind Tim Anderson does give the White Sox that opportunity. And it's good to see that Luis Robert has his legs. Eloy Jimenez, my only one negative thing to say about Jimenez is that it's a lot of ground balls early. However, he's three for 12, and he's driven in five runs so far. He's got five RBIs. That's great. Jose Abreu, four for 11. Jim, Abreu scored six runs this weekend. Uh, Not RBIs. He's still got a couple RBIs, but he scored six runs this weekend, which (laughs) is great. He's going to lead a new category. Exactly. He's going to have 120 runs scored and 120 RBIs. You heard it here first. Tim Anderson only played in game three. That was his opening day as he was suspended for the first two games of the season. First pitch he sees of the year and he doubles down the left field line. He was three for five with two RBIs in game three. Yasmani Grandal hit his first home run of the season in game two. Josh Harrison had a double and a triple in game two. And before his hamstring barked on him and he had to leave on paternity leave, uh, AJ Pollock was four for seven in his first two games with the Chicago White Sox. However, the... Player that was picked of our cog of the series, which goes to the best player of the series voted upon by our followers on Twitter, which you could follow us at Sox machine and at Sox machine underscore Josh over 500 votes, 73% of our followers picked Andrew Vaughn. Andrew Vaughn went four for 10 with two homers and six RBIs in the series against the Detroit Tigers. So he wins the first cog of the series of the 2022 regular season And Jim, we knew the White Sox offense could be dangerous. And if they were to survive these injuries early, they had to be. They demonstrated how efficient they can be in this series. And boy, Andrew Vaughn looks dangerous.
2: Yes, uh, it was. uh, I, I was thinking back to the second half of last season, especially like August and September and just even like when he made good t- contact, even when the bat got through the zone quickly, it just seemed like the fly balls were underpowered, like just a lot of 325 foot fly balls. just not quite getting in the track like, oh, that looks good off the bat. Then it flips to the home plate camera, you know, tracking the ball. And it's like, oh, that's not, yeah, the outfielder is not scared. <laughs> and it just mm-hmm. seemed like he didn't have the oomph. and And that made me, I guess, a little bit bearish on Vaughn's Present capabilities, just because if he's not going to be you know fleet of foot, he's going to need those extra base hits. He's going to need to make outfielders turn around. It just seemed like the fly balls were underpowered. I wasn't like I shouldn't say I wasn't bearish on like his big picture potential, but just thought like oh maybe some time in AAA wouldn't hurt because you know he, he this this is him facing upper level pitching for the first time. Like I have no idea what the expectations are if like his good contact isn't. As assertive, as aggressive as maybe it would be three years from now, maybe it wouldn't hurt to have him uh, take a step back. But so far, I think the contact is louder. The bat seems quicker. The bat seems, it seems quicker, but also like in a Jose Abreu or Elo Jimenez type way to where like... The hands are quick, but they can also like shape the barrel in different ways. Like that that single that he shot through the right side, uh, with the infield drawn in. I thought that mm-hmm. was like a nice swing that was quick to the point, compact. Uh, it seemed like he was on time, and, and so it was nice seeing the two swings or like the 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 two modes: the drive, the mistake out to the out to the you know deep center, deep left, and then oh uh, well, one was really deep inside the foul pole left. Uh, but he also had some nice drives that maybe if there weren't in Comerica Park would have been more threatening as well. Uh, so I like the contact to center to left. And then he also had that swing just like getting the job done, um, you know, blasting the ball through a running and infield, no reaction time, and, and, and getting that RBI done. So I, I think so far, I, I think we have some idea of just what the injury in the second half of the season, like the last two months, Uh, where you're saying like his back was hurting him his legs were affected like losing that power base uh, i think we have a better idea now of just how much he was sapped in those last two months by just how quick he looks right now
1: yeah i'm I'm glad you bring up the rbi single through the drawn in infield in game two because in his previous plate appearance josh harrison had a leadoff triple and he did not score and that was Mm -hmm. very frustrating And Andrew Vaughn was part of that frustration because he swung at a ball that was up in his eyes and he hit a pop fly that was barely past the first base, uh, barely out of the infield. And of course that doesn't get the job done uh, to, to drive in that run and Josh Harrison gets stranded on third base, but he gets another opportunity with a runner on third and he was successful hitting that single through the drawn in infield, as you mentioned, Jim, That's progress. That is learning on the fly for a very young hitter. And he did not look overmatched. And for all of those that have been on the Andrew Vaughn train, man, you could pull down on that horn and blast the horn because this is a very good series that you could take in a highlight reel and say, this is why I believe in this guy. And yes, he is part of a middle of the order of a future White Sox team, whether that is next year or maybe a couple years away from now. Uh, And this is why I believe that this guy could take the torch and replace Jose Abreu at first base. But Andrew Vaughn had a very good series with some big hits for the Chicago White Sox. Six RBIs in your first three games of the year. You can't ask for more than that. So the White Sox offense, very, very effective against Detroit in the first three games Moving over to the pitching side, the starting pitching, I think, fared well. And it starts with Lucas Giolito. He threw 61 pitches on opening day, four scoreless innings, only allowed one hit, just two walks, and he struck out six. And he got pulled after the fourth inning, and I figured, oh, okay, the pitch limit is around 60 pitches for these guys in the first series. No, it became apparent in the game with the reporting that Giolito suffered a strained abdomen muscle and Leto didn't want to go on the IL, but the White Sox have put him on the injured list and Gilito is planned to miss at least two starts. He is eligible to come back on Monday, April 18th when the White Sox travel to Cleveland. So the big question is Jim, how do the White Sox make up for Gilito's absence in the next couple of weeks?
2: I think right now it's a matter of just hope. <laughs> way like uh <laughs> given how early it is given that a bunch of pitchers you know there's a combination of pitchers who need work and pitchers who are going to get work and <laughs> you hope that uh the pitchers who need work uh can be reserved until the days where they're uh they're required to fill those innings like Reynaldo Lopez you know not he, he's not gonna match Giolito. like I I think what we saw from him is you know He's going to get hit just because his slider isn't that good, but he competes with this fastball. It seemed like his fastball is gaining velocity over the course of uh, easily be loosening up. The, the fastball seemed to get more hop on it towards the end, and he did okay. But I think first plan would be you know going with him and then maybe Vince Velasquez and Tanner Banks just kind of putting a combination of righty and lefty to try to get through five innings between the two of them uh, is, is my first guess. But I think the White Sox are hoping right now that with just how – some shaky or some pitchers how shaky they've looked uh, and we've seen some some really uh, low scoring games early and we've seen some some thrashings early i think the uh, the pitching right now is kind of erratic especially depending on how that starter comes out in the first inning or two i think that goes a long way in determining just how i guess the pitching plans are going to develop over the course of the game and how hard managers are going to work or try to uh preserve an early lead or like a small deficit over nine innings versus being more willing to say like, well, I guess we'll eat this game or we'll run with this guy for three innings. If he gets beat in, uh, we're just going to take it because we have to preserve arms early. I think the White Sox, if their offense looks as good as they they are right now, I think they might try to go with, you know, I, I guess try to squeak by with Velasquez and Banks and whoever, just to hope that their offense puts early crooked numbers like they've been doing, like first inning runs against Detroit were important and good. And uh, I think, you know, as long as they can have that early lead, if they can just add that like three run fourth or something like that, just to uh, give them quite a cushion, I think that might put opposing managers in a frame of mind that they're just going to eat a game. (laughs) I think that's really the watching games across the league right now. It seems like if Things aren't going well early. Managers aren't going to pull out all the stops right now. So I think it's incumbent on the offense to put up those numbers like they did early on Saturday, like they did throughout the game on Sunday, just to try to get by with the starters they have and try not to feel like they have to force it themselves, because I don't think they will. You make a good point, Jim,
1: especially because the White Sox have scored in the first inning in every game so far this year. They were ahead of Detroit in all three games and it'd be nice to see that carried over to the next series against the Seattle Mariners which we will be previewing that series shortly in this podcast Dylan Cease he continues to dominate Detroit five innings two hits allowed only one run three walks eight strikeouts on 79 pitches and Jim I have to imagine if Cease had a 100 pitch limit I'm thinking he's got another 10 strikeout day against Detroit right
2: Yeah, probably. uh, His slider looked dangerous. (laughs) And you can tell when he likes a slider if he's throwing it more than his fastball because his fastball is fine. Like it wasn't a matter of like the Tigers ting off on him. It seemed like more of a game plan to where... Uh, I guess if you have hitters like Javier Baez, who's super aggressive, and you have like guys like Akil Badu, who are like rule five picks and trying to get by on bat speed versus pitch recognition, maybe sliders are the way to go. Miguel Cabrera, same thing. like He can fend off fastballs, more about getting him off balance. So it seemed like the game plan was sliders, and he was up for throwing them. So uh, when he has the ability to pitch backwards like that and and feel like he can throw it even like 2-0 counts, 3-1 counts, and... and Throw strikes, full hitters. Uh, that makes him pretty dangerous. And Michael Kopek, he had good results.
1: Kopech threw four innings, two hits, one run allowed, two walks, three strikeouts on 69 pitches. I, I was impressed that Michael Kopech had that type of leash from Tony Larusa uh to be able to throw that many pitches. I was wondering if his pitch limit was going to be around 50, but mm-hmm. it was almost 70 pitches in this start. And I, I want to bring up a stat here. It's called called strike with percentage. It's the amount of pitches thrown that that pitch is either called a strike or a batter whiffed on the pitch. How about that for a straightforward stat? Uh, a good called strike with percentage or CSW is above 30%. An elite percentage for a pitch is 40%. Kopech's fastball was at 21% against Detroit, which is below what we saw last year when he was coming out of the bullpen. His slider was at 14%. So Detroit wasn't really missing these pitches, and Kopech had a difficult time getting his fastball and slider in the strike zone. He did throw seven curveballs, and the curveball had a called strike with percentage of 60%, so maybe suggest that more curveballs in the next start from Michael Kopech. But Jim, the question that I have is if Kopek struggles with his fastball and slider in future starts, what's
2: his third pitch? Well, he didn't throw a changeup, so I think right now he's telling you that his curveball is his third pitch. And he's got a little bit of the Carlos Redon thing to where like he can throw his slider with a couple of different tilts where that kind of acts like two pitches in one, but in in both cases, like, he was having a hard time throwing that really good uh, late-breaking slider anywhere close to the plate. Like, he had a couple near-misses, good takes on Detroit's part, but a lot of the takes were easy on that pitch. So I think uh, going into his next start, there is room for improvement. I would say, like, Reynaldo Lopez, when you watch his slider... It's not really a dynamic pitch. Like, if he locates it well, he can get, uh, you know, contact off the end of the bat, some swings and misses. But it's really there just to take the heat off his fastball and to try to mess up timing. Like, his bread-and-butter pitch is still his fastball. With Kopech, I think the slider is that pitch for him, especially right now with the the velocity he's throwing. And he just needs to get it closer, I think, in order to, to get better results. It's not a case where just, like, they were on it. It was more a matter of, like, he just wasn't really throwing a lot of competitive pitches until later. Uh, I think my bigger concern right now with Kopech is like the velocity. It was towards 93 towards the end. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a conditioning thing. I'm not sure if that's a, you know, a full season starting stamina type thing versus seeing him on the bullpen. I know that he had the off season bout of COVID that set him back a little bit when it came to ramping up for the season. So I'm not sure if we'll see more, but I think if his fastball, you know, it started around 97, then kind of dipped to 95, and then was 93 towards the end. That's a case where if he's living there, it's not the end of the world just because it does have that good carry still when he locates it well. But I think that does put more weight on the slider, making sure that he throws better ones to avoid uh, getting beat up his uh, second and third times through. I think Detroit's lineup was, it's one you can make mistakes too. It's one that, uh, you know, Uh, it's not too deep, especially I would say like in a Sunday lineup early, it's not gonna be the most dangerous lineup. So you you can get by with, uh, you know, missing with the slider like he did and and having to compete in the zone. But I'm thinking like, as we see him go forward, I think I'd like to see more competitive sliders and just better fastball velocity or at least uh, a better average fastball velocity to where like in the second half of the start, as he gets past 50 pitches, he's still throwing like 95. Because I think if, if he dips towards 93, there were some 92 points in there. 92 point. Uh, I think everything rounded up to 93, but he was dipping towards 92. That's a case where I'm not sure what that guy does in the fifth and sixth innings against better offenses in warmer weather in smaller parks. So hopefully this, it's a matter of just uh, getting up to speed and uh, you know making sure that. He's not overexerting himself or he's not forsaking mechanics for power and maybe running into another injury risk. Yeah, there's room for improvement for Michael Kopech. Right now,
1: it's 60-grade stuff, 40% command. He needs to do a better job of commanding his pitches. Yet, four innings, only two hits allowed, only one run allowed, two walks and three strikeouts. Like, if, if this is a stat line for Michael Kopech, who wasn't sharp, We have seen what a Michael Kopech, who is sharp, last year in his spot starts. Still a good result. Still competitive. Still putting the White Sox in a position to win. He did not have a meltdown and get blown up and wrecked the bullpen. So Michael Kopech was very competitive. There's just room for growth. And that's what we're going to see in 2022 for Michael Kopech. And keep an eye on how he progresses as he goes again transitions from reliever to starter in 2022 he hasn't done this job since 2018 there's some rust to break off from Michael Kopech but the White Sox are off to a good start they're two and one and on top of the American League Central right now and they are heading home for their first home stand of the season against the Seattle Mariners as they come into town from Minneapolis we'll preview that series next after a quick word from our sponsors
0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Welcome back to the Sox Machine podcast. Next up for the Chicago White Sox are the Seattle Mariners, who did the White Sox a favor of traveling to minnesota and winning two out of the first three games of that series they do play their final game of the four game series monday night at 6:40 p.m central time that's a brutal two-day stretch for seattle as they have to get on a plane after that game arrive in chicago which is going to be definitely after midnight and get ready to play at 305 p.m central time that that's pretty rough Understandably, the Mariners don't have their probable starters available online, but we're gonna take some guesses on who the White Sox could possibly face in this series. A look at the probable starters for both teams. Tuesday, again, this is the home opener. It's at 3 05 p.m. Central Time. Vince Velasquez is getting the ball against Matt Brash, who is a rookie for the Seattle Mariners. Wednesday, this is a 610 PM Central Time start. I am doubtful this game is happening weather-wise. Dallas Keuchel is the probable starter against Robbie Ray, who was a 2021 American League Scion. Thursday, a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. It's to be announced for the White Sox against possibly Logan Gilbert. Tony La Russa did say it could be Dylan Cease on Thursday. That would be his regular work time. But we he may want to give Cease an extra day off early in the season so we could possibly see another pitcher make a spot start. Now, I mentioned Wednesday, your weather forecast. Tuesday, first pitch, temperature 61 degrees, partly cloudy. That is absolutely perfect for opening day weather. Wednesday, first pitch, 68 degrees, 70% chance of rain. Thursday, dry, 50 degrees, partly cloudy. So we could see a doubleheader for the White Sox on Thursday to make it easier for Seattle, not having Seattle to come back to Chicago to play a makeup game. Jim, when looking at the Seattle Mariners, in my season predictions, I have the Mariners winning the American League West. And we just saw the Houston Astros win three out of four in Anaheim. Houston still looks strong. But I think Seattle has a chance to be just as strong. And watching them play against the Minnesota Twins, you've seen flashes where, yes, this is a really good team and there's a lot of fight in them. What makes Seattle interesting to you?
2: Well I, I think when you look at the uh, balance of their lineup and rotation like I think you know, Robbie Ray was a great addition to augment like a guy like Logan Gilberts like they have a good balance of proven veterans uh, targeted high price investments and, and then also some uh, farm system that's finally paying off. Uh, when you look at the the hitting side um, they're, they're really fascinating when it comes to the outfield just because uh, Kelnick and Rodriguez you're having those two basically top, 10 prospects. I'm not sure if Kelnick ever got top 10. He's top 20 at the very least. But then you had Rodriguez, who was top five. And you just have those two guys uh, getting really aggressive assignments, getting like a lot of hopes pinned on them. We've seen the Mariners just underperform before, they've overperformed. Like they've it seems like they underperform when expectations are there. They overperform. Like they can manage to overcome bad run differentials and weird lopsided lineups and rotations. So I never quite know what to expect from them. They're like a a less cursed version of the angels, in which they don't necessarily have the star <laughs> power that the angels have, but somehow Play better than their parts, but also like never quite get there, and they have the long postseason drought. I know they've they had that awesome hype video, uh, before the season talking about how you know this year is when that postseason drought ends, but. Uh, When I look at their lineup, it's it's a good lineup. It could be explosive, but it could be like when you look at Haniger and Rodriguez and just, or not Haniger, Kelnick and Rodriguez and just how the growing pains were for Kelnick, and then Rodriguez could have the same thing. Like he's young, he's untested. It's like it's a lot on his plate, even though he should be good at some point. I'm just thinking like Byron Buxton, just how long it took him uh, to really click. Uh, He had injuries, but just also like he had to you know, survive the contact issues. He had to improve his hit tool at the highest level because he's too talented for it to matter in the minor leagues. And he just had to uh, do that last mile in the majors. And it was a longer last mile for him than maybe other players. I think Rodriguez and Kelnick, when they're that young, could face similar issues. So a lot's riding in them. It feels like almost like with the Tigers before Riley Green got hurt, you know, like a lot of Hope's riding on Torkelson and Green, except Mm -hmm. in this case, like nobody's talking about the Tigers making the postseason. They're talking about like, oh, they can be a threat. They can be dangerous. They can make life hard for the White Sox, but nobody is seeing them closing that gap and actually winning the Central. In this case, people are talking about the Mariners as a playoff threat, as a, a challenger to the Astros. And to me, it seems like maybe a little bit too much is riding on Kelnick and Rodriguez uh, performing immediately or at least close to immediately, I would say for a majority of the year, uh, for me to have them toppling the Astros this year, I think they're a year away from really capitalizing on, on everything they're building towards.
1: Yeah. If they're going to overtake the Astros, they really need big performances from their veterans. Like Adam Frazier. We talked a lot about Adam Frazier last year. Uh, now he's in Seattle, Jesse Winker, who they acquired from Cincinnati along with Eugenio Suarez, uh, who's going to be playing back at third base. He's not at shortstop anymore, which thank God for him because he was terrible at shortstop for Cincinnati last year. And, of course, Mitch Hanager. Like They really need these four veterans to have above-average type of seasons to carry the load offensively because if you can get Kalnick and you can get Rodriguez to start showing flashes of the brilliance, Of their potential. You know that's the frosting on the cake. For the Seattle Mariners. But I think you're right Jim. They really need those four veterans to hit. And that's where I'm going to be paying attention to. For the White Sox pitching staff is. Can they get Frazier and Winker. Especially these two guys out. Often preventing Seattle to get a rally going. Because if they can. That they'll make life a lot easier. For the White Sox against the Mariners. It is not going to be an easy series. For the White Sox, I, I view it to be a good, early, tough test for them, especially not having Lucas Giolito or Lance Lynn available to pitch in this series. We'll see if Dylan Cease pitches in this series, but if the White Sox can win this series, Jim, with Vince Velasquez and Dallas Keuchel making starts, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to be more hyped about the White Sox. and. The dower that I had, or at least a bit of concern that I had for the month of April, will alleviate, uh, even despite all the injuries the White Sox have had.
2: Yeah, I think Robbie Ray is going to be an interesting test just because the White Sox, I think one thing I was really impressed by during the Detroit series was that they only struck out 14 times over three games. Like that's that's incredible. a 12%. Uh, strikeout rate—that's a 10% reduction in their strikeout rates from uh, from last year. And, and last year they were in the bottom half or, or top half—I should say—the better half of strikeout rates. But when you factor in like the lack of walks or like you know, an unimpressive walk total and the ground balls, they didn't get the most out of that. Uh, above average or better than average strikeout rate. in this case you know cutting the strikeout rate by this much early uh, even though it's a small sample and maybe one start against Robbie Ray corrects those numbers a little bit and um, you know brings them more towards the average but if this is something that hangs around we've seen teams like the Astros and the Brewers really make leaps by cutting their strikeout rates making a targeted effort to uh not have so many at-bats end in, you know, just retreating to the dugouts And with the White Sox, it wasn't that big of a problem before, but if they can, you know, be top five, uh, you know, top three in the American League in strikeout rates, that's a different offense. Even if, like, they still hit maybe too many ground balls for your liking or still, um, you know, maybe don't draw the walks up and down the lineup like you wish they would. Like, that's just more... Mm -hmm. More at bats where something's happening, more at bats where there's, uh, you know, batters can be moved over or just uh, errors can be forced. Like, and, and if they're not changing their games, like, it's one thing to, you know, I guess you could have, like, a strikeout rate just by bunting most of the time. Like, you could have, like, a 5% strikeout rate if you bunted every other batter. And that wouldn't matter. So there's a point where just, like, contact for the sake of contact doesn't doesn't make a difference. But in this case, like, they're swinging well. They're the The exit velocities were where you wanted to see them. They were definitely hitting the ball harder than Detroit. And if they're making that kind of contact while not striking out, that can really only mean good things. Really good points, Jim. We'll see on how the white Sox do against
1: the Mariners. We will be recapping this series on Thursday night for Sox machine live, which you can watch that show on youtube.com slash machine. And of course, be able to listen to the podcast version if you want to tune in friday morning as will be in the socks machine podcast feed which you can subscribe to the socks machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts all right so this is the first stand, and when it comes to the first homestand jim it's always about what's new for food and what are the new beer items molson coors has taken over as the official beer vendor of the chicago white Sox. so for all those that enjoyed Drinking Miller products at Guarantee Field, You are in luck. You'll be able to get those Miller products. The Goosehead is no longer in right field, which is a bit sad. I thought it added something to the stadium. I'm not sure what that new uh, train cart is going to be as far as beer. Uh, But the Lightning Kugels uh, Lodge, I have to get the official name still. I'll see it when I'm at the games this week. Uh, they, they have taken over as far as what used to be known as the craft cave, and you'll still be able to get plenty of craft beers down in that bar at guarantee rate field. But Jim, uh, as someone that likes to visit guarantee rate field, when you see all the new food items, the Chicago white Sox have recently announced, which ones would you be most interested in trying when visiting Chicago?
2: Well, on the uh, beer front, I saw that Alagash is now available at the park, and that's I think yeah, Allegash White's a really good summer beer. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, they're they're good at making the uh, the crisp beers, the, the the low ABV beers that also have flavor. So fan of that. Uh, that's something I would uh, seek out if I were there. Uh, when it comes to the new items this year, I thought like yeah, I thought the churro shake would be interesting, but maybe a bit rich. I think, like I would enjoy a couple <laughs> sips of it, and then like wanna pass it off to somebody just because I think by the end, I think you know you just feel like the the sugar spike start happening, so uh, that might be a bit rich, but I think when I go to the ballparks, I kind of prioritize uh, like like I think my favorite food at the ballpark is the Cuban sandwich, uh just because it's you can walk with it, you don't have to find a table, you don't have to find a platform, you don't risk. Like ruining my uh, my my Conseco Road Gray jersey, mm-hmm. like with a uh, uh, stray uh, mustard or onions coming off or what have you. So I like the Cuban because it's uh, very portable and and still delicious and not something you find everywhere. So I think along those lines, like I would try the uh, was it pretzel bratwurst?
1: Yeah, the pretzel wrapped bratwurst.
2: Yeah, that looks like something where it's you know I saw the sliders; those look good, but I mean like sliders are hard to eat in a seat, like, you know, carrying multiple burgers around the the smoked wings looked good also, but yeah, wings in a seat, uh, not really, uh, my idea of a a great ballpark food, but I think the pretzel wrap bratwurst, I think if it makes the bratwurst easier to eat while moving or standing, that can only be a plus. So I think it'd be the first thing I would try.
1: Yeah. That's number one on my list of things that I'll be trying is the pretzel wrapped, wrapped bratwurst. And if you follow us on Instagram, We're at socks machine on Instagram during the season. I'm going to try as many new food items as possible and we'll be posting pictures and our reviews. I'm going to drag Kim. She's our food reviewer for socks machine. She's the foodie. She's going to give her takes as far as the food items. She is most excited for rainbow cone. Oh yeah. Now Jim, you are a Downers Grove guy. Have you had the rainbow
2: cone experience? I have not, but I enjoy ice cream, so that would also be... I, I meant to mention that that would be also on my list. I think more than the churro shake, although I, I do go for a churro every time I'm at the park, I think Same. I would uh, switch to the rainbow cone at least once to try it out if the line is reasonable. <laughs> yeah. I can see the case where like you're standing in line for, uh, for innings, and that's a case where I might pass, but... Uh, maybe like on a 40 degree night, (laughs) I think that might might be the way you can actually get back to your seat within like an inning and a half.
1: Yes. Uh, so the pretzel wrap bratwurst is going to be available at many of the concession stands. Uh, the churro shake is only available in the club level along with the sliders. So if you're in the 300 level, you should be able to get those two items. Rainbow cone is going to be available in section 158, which is down the left field line. And 526. So if you're in the 500 level, you'll have a rainbow cone stand up there. And the smoked wings are going to be in section 101 and section 529. So for all those that are up there in the third level, you will be able to get those items as well. But you're right, Jim. Rainbow cone in the summertime, that is going to be at least a two inning weight. At least a two inning weight to get your rainbow cone. I absolutely. Maybe that's like love a
2: blowout. It, that's like a. Uh... <laughs> third inning uh Vince Velasquez got knocked out of the game. Now they're just trying to chew through Jimmy Lambert whoever else is around and it's uh 7 to 1 and getting worse and okay, now I can I don't have to watch this. I'm getting ice cream. Yeah,
1: Instead of going to get more beer as I got season tickets in section 108. <laughs> That'll be the
2: well, rainbow cone. See you guys later. <laughs> just <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's a way like It could be used to salvage a bad situation. Exactly.
3: Well,
1: it's not a bad day. I got rainbow cone.
2: Yeah. So there you go. All right.
1: Well, those are three items. And again, we'll see more food items throughout the season at Guarantee Ray Field. And when we get an opportunity to have those new food items, we'll post our food reviews on our Instagram, which again, you can follow us on Instagram at Socks Machine. Well, you guys had questions for us and we'll answer them next in PO Socks.
0: Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox.
1: Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our listeners, get to ask the questions, which all of our questions in our PO socks mailbag will be coming from our Patreon supporters, which you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash And our first question, Jim, of the 2022 regular season comes from Alec. And Alec wrote to us with Lucas Giolito, now missing at least two starts. Do you think that'll push Rick Hondico after Frankie Matos? If so, what's the most you
2: give up for him?
1: Well, then I think there's
2: also, I mentioned the next question uh, can also be kind of a joint question.
1: Ah, Rajestad9. Do you think Dallas Keuchel, Vince Velasquez, and Johnny Cueto would be enough to shore up the back end of the rotation, especially given all the early injuries? What would you do at this point if you were the GM?
2: Yeah, I, I think... Right now, uh, with the reports being that the A's were asking for Andrew Vaughn for Frankie Montas, <laughs> watching the the series that uh Vaughn had to start the season, the increased power, the exit velocity being where you wanted to see it, the uh the barrel being very dangerous. Like I think that showed why that's a ridiculous asking price i think the one thing you can justify the a's and asking for vaughn is because as we talked about before with the debate between you know whether he'd rather see colson montgomery traded or gavin sheets at this juncture for the white Sox, like the white Sox don't really have anybody in between vaughn who's definitely top 100 top 50 top 25 prospect when he was a prospect and somebody who might be on the top 100 list a year from now like they don't have anybody in the back half of the top 100 where like yeah I'd I'd trade him for uh two years of Frankie Montas and then the Oakland say like hey we got a top 100 prospect and somebody else for Frankie Montas like that's why this is a hard uh needle to thread between these two teams and when I saw Vaughn being the the requested uh player for Montas and then, you know, seeing the idea of, you know, having the sweat through Cueto starts and Velasquez starts, et cetera. Like it did remind me a little bit of the dynamic uh, in 2016 with the James Shields trade and how like, you know, the 23 and 10 magic was running out and Matt Latos was up against it. And apparently not a pleasant guy to be around either. And the White Sox were looking for something else. And so, Uh, The Padres wanted to get out from under Shields' contract because Ron Fowler was being his uh, impetuous self uh, and uh, kind of throwing Shields under the bus a little bit. And, uh, you know, Preller was able to prey on the White Sox' desperation a little bit and get a prospect he really liked. And, you know, I don't think he knew that Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to be this good. (laughs) Like, you know, I, I, I you know, I don't think anybody thought that, like that he'd be like a cover, cover boy for, uh, you know, video games and a potential 40-40 guy. Like I thought that he was going to be like a starting shortstop and not like quite the superstar they turned into, but it was a way to get like a prospect he really liked and also save a little bit of money. uh Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe the White Sox being in the position they are where, they obviously could use a starter. They could use maybe two starters with both Giolito and Lin out. Like it's a way to try to ask for somebody you really like and see if the desperation gets to Rick Hahn. I, I imagine though that, uh, you know, still wearing the scars from the James Shields trade that he might try to use that as a uh, cautionary tale or a teachable moment to say like, you know, if it's, uh, if it's poor planning or like if, uh, you know, our, our efforts to shore up a rotation at the start of a season – aren't holding up, it maybe doesn't make sense to scramble so hard in the first month or two of the season and try to salvage it. Like, if it's a bad plan, it just might be a bad plan the rest of the season. You just might have to eat it. But if it's a good plan that's temporarily hitting some speed bumps, like in this case, I think you could call the g and Lin injuries speed bumps, given that they're 2-1 and and that the offense still looks good. Like, they can endure it, and they can wait for... Uh, July to roll around or even June to roll around. Hope that some of these early prospect performances turn into increased stock. Uh, hope that some of the uh, standings create some situations where teams are looking to sell starters, uh, you know, be, besides Frankie Montas, and to create a little bit of a markets rather than just a, a one-pitcher situation. Uh, so I think that's really what I think the White Sox are going to do. It's going to be ugly early. It's not going to be fun to watch. Yeah, you know, uh, Velasquez and whoever else is taking the starts uh, or, or trying to patch together starter innings and and, and crossing your fingers, fingers that uh, Keikel gets the soft contact that makes him good. But if it's a good plan, if the White Sox have the kind of roster that should win out, even with some early injuries, and I think you're going to see Rick Hahn sitting on his hands early doing his best to ignore his phone, <laughs> and uh, especially maybe text coming from uh, David Forst in Oakland and saying like, uh, you know, you got extra bats you know <laughs> how about Vaughn now uh and 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 really uh resisting the urge to give the thumbs up emoji <laughs> I think it's really uh uh gonna be the task uh during these starts now I, I think if you see the a situation where the offense is doing all it can and uh you know and scoring four and a half five runs a game and they're still uh you know, treading water or slightly underwater and and the prognoses for Lynn and Giolito are even worse than you thought. Maybe that, that forces some action. But if you're talking about just being one starter short for a couple months, and hopefully Giolito comes back and makes the White Sox back to one starter short, uh, I think that's something they can temporarily endure because when you look at the, the strength of the offense, the finally having more bats than spots, especially when A.J. Pollock is healthy, it should be able to absorb... This kind of misfortune, uh, at least for a couple months.
1: And as far as other pitchers becoming available, I am paying attention to how Luis Castillo bounces back for the Cincinnati Reds.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: He's a very similar situation as Frankie Montas. It is another year control for the 2023 season. Yes, it is a red flag for a shoulder injury, any type of shoulder injury for a starting pitcher. But if Oakland can't find someone to offload Frankie Montas, as the season progresses, his value, I think, is going to come down a bit, especially when you get closer to the trade deadline. And if Luis Castillo bounces back and he has strong starts for Cincinnati, well, now, as a buyer, you got some leverage, leveraging Castillo against Montas or vice versa. So maybe there'll be other options available for Rick Hahn. I agree with you, Jim. I think they just got to survive April, see what Johnny Cueto could bring to the table, and kind of reassess early June to see where they're at. And hopefully Lance Lynn is also back and see how strong he is. And if Cueto isn't going to work out, and if Velasquez isn't going to work out, then maybe that's the time you can jump the market like they did for James Shields. (laughs) and acquire someone like Luis Castillo or Frankie Montas, hoping that they perform a lot better than James Shields, that's how I can envision it happening. Or, you know, the White Sox and Rickon can decide to wait until August 2nd (laughs) to make a big move. But that's kind of how I see it happening for the White Sox, is trying to survive through April and May. But great questions. Thank you guys so much. Our next question comes from Tim Brown. And I really like this question, Jim. Tim is asking, who has more
2: staying power in the White Sox bullpen,
1: Tanner Banks or Bennett Souza?
2: I think right now I'm looking at it in terms of how much the White Sox need multiple innings from their second left-handed reliever or third left-handed reliever. Uh, With Garrett Crochet, he offered backup for Aaron Bummer, but also like they were going to stretch him out to fill that Michael Kopech role of throwing – you know, two to three innings with regularity. And now with Crochet out uh, and and the White Sox still feeling around for what exactly Vince Velasquez is going to do, what Reynaldo Lopez is going to do, it's still unclear um, exactly what, you know, that lefty is going to bring. I think if they need just one inning of ability to get some strikeouts and some uncomfortable at-bats for left-handed hitters, I think Souza is the guy. If they need somebody who can throw 30, 40, 50 pitches, in a game and not be taxed and be usable within, you know, three days. I think banks is the guy, but I think, you know, if you're looking at a, a, a rotation where long relief or sorry, a bullpen where long relief really isn't a concern. I think I like Souza more. Okay. I, they both looked really
1: good this weekend. I, I was impressed by Tanner banks. I, I didn't know. I didn't know what to expect. It's his major league debut. He walks the first guy and then he strikes out the side. <laughs> I did yeah. not see that coming. Uh, he, he performed really well. But I have to say, you know, both Banks and Souza not having high expectations. They both pitched really well this weekend. And hopefully that continues. I, I made the joke on Twitter, Jim, but Liam Hendricks owes everyone in the bullpen dinner. Uh, to make up for his <laughs> performance. Uh everyone else of the bullpen looked really good. Aaron Bummer picked up a save. Aaron Bummer leads the White Sox in saves right now uh, after the opening weekend. Liam
2: Hendricks was the worst yeah. reliever <laughs> the weekend. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I think with Sousa, you know, we haven't seen the best velocity from him yet. Like the the reported velocity I think was ticking up 96, 97. And he wasn't quite there yet. So I think it depends on whether he gets there or whether it's like a Jonathan Stever thing to where like the guy who was sitting 96 is now sitting 94 and he's a little less special than maybe the reports had, you believe. But so far, uh, given what he's throwing without his best, uh, I like his upside. Great question, Tim. Thank you so
1: much. Our next question comes from Steve Griffin. And this goes back to the minor leaguers. And when Jim wrote during the minor league week on Sox Machining, this this question kind of goes back to that list. But Steve is asking Jim, which of the minor leaguers would you least like to part with in a trade and why?
2: Well, I think... uh you can just look at my top 10 White Sox prospect lists and, and you can do so by going to futuresocks.com, which now directs to our uh, White Sox prospects page and I still have a breakout for prospect week coverage and with my top 10 White Sox prospect list which is uh, available exclusively to Patreon supporters uh, my approach in ranking them is answering this question because I feel like this is the question people would come to me for like they wouldn't come to me saying like who's improved their swing or who's really um you know tightened up their delivery and has a repeatable delivery and who's got the deception like there are you know when you look at baseball america or eric longenhagen uh they're the guys you want to talk to when you're looking at like who's made the tweaks uh for me i think my value what i bring to it is who the white Sox have fared well in developing like just having a history of following white Sox prospects closely and just having a sense of which types of players have turned out well for them and which ones haven't quite clicked. And which, you know, kind of looking at their shared backgrounds, looking at, you know, uh, and I guess synthesizing reports from other people and saying, like, how does this fit in with who the White Sox typically get something out of? And 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 who are the players the White Sox, you know, what skills and what uh, tools are the White Sox less successful in improving? Uh, and in this case, like, you know, I kind of synthesize it and it turns into a ranking of, like, who would I least like the White Sox uh, to trade, and so like Oscar Coloss, I had him number one, because uh, you know, one is you know he doesn't have the trade value necessarily because the White Sox just showed in a market situation that they value him more highly than anybody else. So good luck getting you know fair value for him uh, going into a season, uh, and until he starts showing what he can in the minor leagues, and I think just Marco Patty's track record says like, okay, like when he believes in a guy and when he reserves. Uh, when he spends years pursuing somebody and earmarks money for them, generally speaking, turns out pretty well. Like even Yolbert Sanchez, who I wasn't necessarily believing in, I thought he was just kind of a low-ceiling acquisition, especially at the pandemic. Uh coming back from the pandemic, he lost some of his athleticism, kind of chunked out a little bit, <laughs> lost his ability to cover a shortstop and in a plus way, more of a second baseman. I thought, like, oh, this was Marco Patti's first mistake, and and Look at him now. He is is his hit tools kind of shooting through the roof. He looks like a Nick Magical type replacement to where like, even if he is a most of the time second baseman, hit tools playing up there. He's starting to draw walks now. So I, I think you're seeing like this approach synthesize into like a pretty compelling hitter to where like, you know, I had him in my top 10 and now I'm thinking like, oh, maybe I ranked him a little bit too low. I had him number nine. Maybe I should have moved him up a little bit more, believing in the same Marco Patty juice that, uh, uh, with uh, Oscar Colossus number one. So I think those are the kind of players like, that I think the White Sox can get more out of than they're currently ranked. And I think the other one I'd mentioned is Brian Ramos. And I had him at uh-huh. number seven. I think looking at the list, I've had him higher than anybody else because he's a White Sox prospect who's who can't drink yet, And, uh, he pulls the ball in the air and, you know, to go back to your catchphrase, a ball in air and, and going, uh, you know, trying to figure out what the White Sox do well, what they don't do well. And in case of what they don't do well is like closing up plate discipline issues and getting power hitters to lift the ball to the pole field that he's doing this at 19 years old, uh, 20 years old, uh, at levels that are older than him, pitchers who are older than him. And the strikeout rates aren't terrible. The fly ball rate's good. He can really hit some impressive homers from time to time, even if he isn't accessing the power regularly. I look at that guy and say, like, he's done the hard parts with the White Sox prospects. Like, he's younger than the level, and he's lifting the ball in the air. Great. I'm sold. Or at least I'm sold with where he is right now. Now he's got, you know, to, to show the ability to, you know, preserve that skill as the pitching gets tougher. But I like where he is at Kannapolis. I liked where he was at the AZL or at the ACL uh, now. And, uh, you know, now he's at Winston-Salem, off to a decent start so far. So, like, that's a case where maybe I'd rank him slightly higher than I would, uh, you know, just because of, uh, like, I had Yolaki Cespedes at number six. Like, maybe I'd put Ramos ahead of Cespedes now, uh, just thinking about a little bit more. But that's a case where just, uh, you know, with, with what the White Sox do well, and also Ramos is Cuban, so who knows, maybe that's Marco Patti again <laughs> uh, coming through. Uh, uh, those are prospects who I think just, uh, you know, with the, what the White Sox do well and what they've been showing and the kind of progression they've shown in the toughest of skills, which is closing up the plate discipline, drawing more walks and lifting the ball in the air. Uh, you know, Yolbert Sanchez doesn't really have that kind of pull in the air power, but he puts the ball in the air. Like he's good line drive gap to gap. Like he's good at barreling up the ball and getting it to the outfield in a useful way. Like, I I think that's kind of skill I like. So I think those are the, uh, uh, when you look at my list, that's the, uh, you know, ranking them in terms of who I think the White Sox can get a lot of if they keep them is, uh, how I've ranked them. And, and I think those are three I'm singling out just based on what they've done so far. And if you haven't gotten a chance,
1: the Future Sox crew has done a terrific job previewing each of the White Sox minor league affiliates. Big shout out to Steve Hassman and Jeff Cohen. And of course, James Fox for previewing the Chicago White Sox affiliates. And remember, you can listen to the Future Sox podcast wherever you listen to podcasts on Tuesdays as Mike Rankin and James Fox, they're going to share their top 30 White Sox prospects. So the guys that Jim listed are definitely in the top 30 and they're going to be chatting about how the white Sox minor league seasons have started with their opening days. Most of them on Friday. And of course, the Charlotte Knights have now been playing for more than a week. So again, make sure to be listening and subscribing to the future Sox podcast. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for PO Sox. If you would like to submit a question or topic to a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, Again, the way to do it is by becoming a Patreon supporter, and you can do so at patreon.com/socksmachine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content like the bonus PO socks questions that we answer on every Monday episode. And also our MLB draft reports, which the upcoming draft report will be our first mock draft of the draft season as James Fox and I will go through the first round of draft picks that will come out on Wednesday morning. And along with that exclusive content, you get ad free versions of both the podcast and the website, and you get the first crack to buy our Sox Machine swag when it does become available it's two dollars a month, or you could save with an annual plan, and you can sign up at patreoncom Machine. And that will do it for this Socks Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. As we are now into our regular season form, you'll be having the White Sox wake up calls coming up later this week. There'll be Socks Machine live, so we are with you Monday through Friday with the Socks Machine podcast. And again, you'll be able to listen to us Friday afternoons on six seventy to score. On the Lawrence Home Show, we are super excited for that. So even more content coming from us to you guys. And don't forget to also subscribe to the Future Sox podcast, which new episodes will be released on Tuesdays to recap all of the action down in the White Sox minor leagues with Mike Rakin and James Fox. But if you just discovered Sox Machine, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.